Would you turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2? We are working our way through this book. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 1 as it leads into this section. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened or spooked in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and all of that is from God. For it has been granted, gifted to you, that because or for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. So, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I borrowed the title of this sermon. In my studies, I came across this, and I thought it was really good, and it really captures what I think Paul is saying here. And the name of the sermon is called The Drain of Division. Let me explain what that word drain means from my perspective. Do you know what leeches do? They suck the life out, they drain the life and strength from somebody. Uh, Perhaps if you, like me, many times over my driving history have gone out early in the morning when it's below zero and I forgot to check the battery in the fall like I should have. Either nothing or click, 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 click. Something's been going on that I was not aware of. The battery was being drained. Something in the electrical system, the generator, the alternator, whatever, has been draining the battery of its strength and its power to start the automobile. The interesting thing about this is it's usually a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight, usually, unless the cable comes off the top of the post or something like that. It's a slow process. Well, today we find ourselves where in the letter of Paul to the Philippians, having given an explanation of his own personal circumstances, informing them what he's going through, he now turns his attention to the church back at Philippi and his genuine concern for them. I want to remind you, in the words of someone else, this is probably one of the warmest and personal letters of Paul in the New Testament. This has got his heart written all over it because of their grace and kindness to him. Last time in verse 27, after having given his own situation, he says, only. Remember that word only means of first and paramount importance. 
Be sure not neglect these things in your pursuit of joy. If you want to have the same kind of joy that I'm seeking to have and, and experience, don't neglect these things. Only. And so in those verses 27 through 30, he emphasized the need for fearless courage in the face of opposition and suffering. He gives to us the SSS. Stand, strive, and suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he focuses on relationships that Christians have one with another. Showing how it is imperative that we fight for unity of conviction and affection through having humble hearts. Both of these themes, courage toward hostile non-Christians and compassion toward annoying fellow Christians, show to us what it means to fulfill our calling as citizens of heaven. And what's the result of that? Well, what's the theme I've been given talking about Philippians? Greater joy increased joy in our walk with God. So having gotten a report from Epaphroditus about the condition of the Philippians, Paul addresses a crucial element in this church, and that element is unity. Interesting in chapter 4, and we'll get there. Usually I remember how to pronounce it until I get there, and I forget it. It's either Euodia, Euodia, Syntyche, Syntyche, I'm not sure, but there's two women in the church that he points out who are, who are having a problem. They weren't unified, and he names them in this letter, which makes it very important that they deal with it. This plea from Paul here in these early verses is full of passion, the right kind of passion. Passion that says, please think about what I'm saying. Now, I want to stop here and define unity just basically, I'm going to go on a little bit in the words of John Piper and, and, and talk about what Christian unity is. But what is unity? Well, first of all, unity is not uniformity. Everybody doesn't have to wear the same uniform. Unity is also not unanimity. That is, everybody has to pull the same lever on the ballot box. We're allowed to disagree. We have to do it agreeably in love, in Christ. So unity is not uniformity. It's not unanimity. So what is it? I want to share with you, and you might want to write these down if you're taking notes on your outline. I've got several verses. I'm only going to read about three or four, and you can write them down and check them out later. But if you go to your um, concordance or go on Google and type in unity in the Bible, you'll see a whole bunch more. But let me just share with you some of these. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. United in mind and thought. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep 
not produce, but to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And there's even a verse in the Old Testament that speaks about unity, found in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. There are other verses that we could give to you this morning. I just want you to know that there are many. If you wrote those down, you can check those out on your own. Second part of that first part of the outline is, so what is Christian unity? It is unique. John Piper said this back in, I think, 2015. Unity among two or more people gets its virtue entirely from something else. Unity itself is neutral until it is given goodness or badness by something else. So, if Herod and Pilate are unified by their common scorn for Christ, that's not good unity. But if Paul and Silas sing together in prison for the sake of the gospel, that's good unity. Therefore, it's not enough to call Christians just, quote, have unity. It could be good or it could be bad. He says, personally, the unified vote 50 years ago in my home church in South Carolina to forbid blacks from attending services was not a good unity. The unified vote of a mainline Protestant denomination to bless forbidden sexual acts is not good unity. Christian unity in the New Testament has some elements that make it uniquely Christian. Number one, the source. Where does the unity in the body of Christ come from? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, we read it a moment ago, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace. The source must be God, His Spirit, and His Word. That's the source of our unity. That's what we rally around. That's what we have to have one mind and one heart. The Word of God. Secondly, he talks about views. He says that pastors and teachers are to equip the saints, quote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4.13. In other words, the unity that we want is unity in the truth, not opinions, not popular opinion, not even consensus. It's the truth that's what we rally around for our unity. Thirdly, John says, and I certainly agree with this from the Scriptures as well, it includes affectionate love, not just sacrificing for things you don't like. It's a feeling of endearment. We are hard to have affection for those who are our family in Christ. Love one another, Paul says in Romans 12, with brotherly affection. And then finally, Christian unity has two goals. Number one, a witness to the world and the glory of God. A witness to the world and Ultimately, the aim is to glorify God. And therefore, John says, and I'll just say this in passing, what does it mean for us? What are the implications for us? Well, number one, we should seek the fullness of the unity creating the Spirit. When the Bible says be filled, literally be being filled over and over again with the Spirit. If the unity comes from the Spirit, the Spirit's got to be there present and working and fully enabling us in order for us to have unity. Seek the filling of the Spirit. 
Secondly, we need to strive and know Christ, but also to spread true views of Christ and His ways if that's going to be the source of truth. And then finally, he says, and I like this, love Christians across boundaries. Cultivate affection across differences for those who are truly your brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord willing, this summer I'll be going to India again a couple of times. Now, I'll be in Indian churches. They're different. But there's one thing about it. Even if I can't speak Hindi or Telugu and they can't speak English, we have a unity. What's that unity? It's the truth of Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. And they no longer are foreigners or aliens to me. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. See what, see what he's saying? such as Christian unity, found in the Scriptures and encouraged for us to seek after in this passage of Scripture. Well, is unity important? Oh, it's a major issue in the church. I've given you six reasons that I believe make it very, very important. It's paramount that we're concerned about it and we seek to maintain it. Remember, the Spirit of God creates it. When I become a Christian, the unity machine is part of my DNA. And what I have to do, what you have to do, what we have to do is to maintain it, literally to protect it from any outside influences that would come and undermine it and destroy it. Why is unity important? Well, first of all, it's a testimony to and a visible expression of the character of God. I was talking with a fellow the other day, and he said, you know, last week I was teaching and I tried to teach the Trinity. I said, good luck. When you got it figured out, write a book and sell it. Try unity. Trinity. The word's not in the Bible. But God is one God, Three persons. We represent that God to this world. When we say we love God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and then we don't act like it, what are we saying? We're just speaking words. I believe we are maligning, dishonoring, and distorting the character of God, which no longer will bring glory to Him, but will bring shame to the cause of Jesus. That makes it important, doesn't it? Secondly, it is an aid to sharing the gospel. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, Gospel of John, chapter 17. Just a note of clarification, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer is not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer, just being technical, you know. This, in John 17, is the Lord's Prayer, and in that prayer... Before he's taken before his accusers and nailed to a cross, Jesus, in this very intimate setting, is talking to his Father. Listen to what he says in John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What a, what a note of promise. There's more coming who are going to believe. Not just these guys, but there's more going to believe so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, look, look at this. That they also be, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, when we testify to the good news of the gospel and say that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, 
and we don't practice unity, what we're doing is negating the gospel presentation. Let them be one, just like you and I are, Father, so that people will believe their message of the gospel of good news. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Go on, if you will. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Twice in three or four verses he mentions the same thing. Let them be one so that the world will believe their message. I don't think any of us who know the Lord and really want to see people come to know Christ would intentionally do something that would negate the message of Christ. But without realizing it, we can do that. When a church has as its motto, we preach the gospel, and in parentheses, but we don't live it, they negate it. That makes it important, doesn't it? Thirdly, it's an attractive, beautiful, good, and pleasant thing. Psalm 133, verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like two things. The dew that came down on Mount Hermon and the oil that flowed down Aaron all over his beard. Those are sweet illustrations of the purity and the glory and the beauty and the attractiveness and the attractingness. That may not be an English word. It's attractive in and of itself, but it's very attracting to people. People will be attracted to that if they see it in action. Fourthly, disunity grieves God. Ephesians chapter 4 says, And do not grieve the Spirit of God whereby you've been sealed to the day of redemption. And the verses preceding that's talking about frictions and factions in the body of Christ. Number five, to display disunity is to join the enemy. Satan in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 is called the, the, the slanderer or the accuser of the brethren. John chapter 8 and verse 44, he's called the father of lies. One of the things he likes to do is get in the body of Christ and tell a bunch of lies, start slandering and disrupt. Those who follow those temptations, who give in to those urgings, are joining his side against the body of Christ if they are being disunified. And again, I don't think I would do that intentionally. Devil, please choose me to be on your team. Of course not. But it's something that can happen if we're not careful. Finally, and this kind of goes along with a sermon title, disunity will drain the life and strength of a church. It'll kill joy quicker than anything, but it usually takes time. It's a slow but sure process. All right, enough by way of introduction to that word and its meaning and its uses. Let's go back now to Ephesians chapter 2. And all we're going to do today is look at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice what, or not Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. My apologies. I'm calling this strong motivations. These are reasons, very important reasons to seek unity in the body of Christ. Now, the first thing I want you to do in your mind, don't literally if you want to, but see the word if. So if, change that word if. It's not if, it's since. Or you can also translate it because. Because of these things that are true for you as God's people, these are reasons to pursue unity, to maintain unity in the body of Christ. And there are four things 
They're very simple, and yet they're profound. Think with me for just a few moments, will you? What's the first thing he says? Well, because there is encouragement in Christ. That's the Greek word paraklesis. Same idea as paraclete, the work of the Spirit of God who comes alongside. Because we have encouragement or a Savior who has come alongside us, Jesus left heaven to come alongside believers and assist them in their Christian journey. By His Spirit and His Word, He aids His sons and daughters. He grants them comfort in discouragement, strength in weakness, hope in times of despair, and peace to their hearts that may be trembling. Listen to God's Word on these points. Isaiah 43, verses 1-5. through 5. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You belong to me. When, not if, but when you pass through the waters, here it is, I will be with you. I will come alongside of you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you and drown you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be consumed. The flames shall not utterly destroy you. Why? I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. He comes alongside of us in those very difficult times of life. Since you have that in Christ. Then he talks about strength, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul says, but he said to me, Jesus said this, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hope, Psalm 42. Interesting, in Psalm 42 and 43, he mentions three times the same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You know, sometimes it's good to talk to yourself. Be sure you're in the right crowd. Because they might say, hey, there's a guy talking to himself. Would you call it? Okay. But spiritually, it's good to talk to yourself. And that's what he's doing here. He's talking to his heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? What is your problem? Hope in God. I will praise Him again. He is my salvation. He is my God. There's always hope in God. Fourthly, John 14, 27. Peace, peace, Jesus says, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So because you have encouragement from Jesus Christ, your Savior, who walks alongside of you. Secondly, because you have the comfort or consolation from love, and I believe this refers to the Father. If you look at other verses of Scripture and descriptions of Him, many commentators agree with me. That doesn't make me right, but I feel better. But I think this is talking about the Father, the comfort and the love of the Father. Does the Father comfort us? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. Do you know why God brings comfort to my soul during difficult times? 
Well, obviously it is to praise Him and to glorify Him and to bless Him. But I also need an arrow going out this way because there are other people who either are or soon will be going through the same thing that I can go to them and say, been there, done that, bought a t-shirt, let me tell you what God did for me during that time, and you bring them comfort, the same kind of comfort that God gave to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The Father gives to us comfort because He loves us. Does He love us? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then finally in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, see, behold, I love that word behold. You want a good word study? Get your concordance and look up the word behold. What it means is to stop in your tracks, open your eyes real wide, and if you need to get a set of binoculars, really look at that thing. I mean, really gaze on it. Learn from it. Meditate upon it. Behold, John says, see what kind of love. Not just that it's love, but see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God, and so we are. We have the encouragement of Jesus, the Son of God, We have the comfort of the love of the Father. Thirdly, he says, we have the participation in the Spirit. That's that same word we looked at at the beginning of chapter 1. This is that word fellowship, partnership. It's koinonia. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The ultimate participation in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In or by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Jesus, the Son. God, the Father. The blessed Holy Spirit of God. All of these things. But then there's one more. He talks about affection and sympathy. Please notice And any affection and sympathy. I think that's really a summation of the whole Godhead. The idea of that word in the Greek language is a gut-wrenching expression of intense yearning. A gut-wrenching expression of intense yearning for someone or something. It's from the Father, it's in Christ, and it's by the Spirit. Romans 5.5, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Anybody see, this is probably going to sound crazy, anybody see that movie by Disney called Frozen? I love singing Elsa's song to my granddaughters. Papa, she's doing this. She do- let it go, let it go, and they should just stop and smile. Now why am I saying that? One way to remember these four points is to remember Elsa. I I do that. When I was in college in 1967, I had to memorize the theme of every chapter in the book of Acts. I can still remember the first nine. Apt, pad, sec. Don't push me. 
You do. I, I can do it. I call them jingles, whatever you want to call them. You want to remember this? Remember Elsa. Here we go. Encouragement, love, spirit, and affection. Since, because, those plus multitudes of other blessings have been given to us, as David Ring would say, I got cerebral palsy, what's your problem? With all of these blessings, what is my problem? What is keeping me from pursuing and maintaining and protecting unity, whatever it costs me personally? Because he's going to go on and say, it ain't all about you. When we lose focus as persons and as congregations of why we're here, and what we're supposed to be doing, when we think it's all about me and what I want and my attitude and whatever it is, we'll not have joy, we'll not have unity. But if I can remember, if God has done all this for me, then unity can be attained. I've never done this in 50 years of ministry, but I'm going to do it this morning. I want you to pause with me for just a moment. And I want you to think about what we've already presented. Take a, take a moment, just think about this with me. Has the Lord brought you encouragement when you've been downcast? Has His fellowship been so real when others have forsaken you and felt all alone? Has His consolation and empathy and affection elevated your spirit and picked up your heart in times of difficulty? And if you're a Christian, your answers should be. And if your answers are yes, then praise God for the times that you can look back and recall them. And if we'll do that, we will renew our joy. And more than that, we should pray that such realities might be more and more the reality of my experience and the very ones upon which I rest my soul. I'm quoting Steve Lawson, whom I heard last week preach. So what I'm going to ask you to do with me for about two or three minutes, it's going to seem like 20. I guarantee you. I've got, I got my watch here. i got a second hand. And I'm going to time us for three minutes. I want to shift you will. You don't have to bow your head. That's okay. But just pause. If you can, just close your eyes and think about Elsa. Encouragement, spirit, love, and affection. Lord, you poured that out upon me. I just want to praise you. I just want to glorify you and lift up your name this morning. Lord, I get so busy, I forget about those things. Take about three minutes with me and just meditate upon those, will you?
All right, that was three minutes to the second. Those are profitable times, aren't they? One more thing that I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this morning. I think a serious and honest reflection on these truths will remind us of how blessed we are. We have the encouragement of Jesus, the comfort coming from the Father's love, the indwelling and partnership of the Spirit of God and the affection and sympathy of the whole Godhead, all by grace, all undeserved. Now here's the point. If God has been so gracious to me, an undeserving, redeemed child of God, then meditating upon these blessings should lead me out of gratitude to do all that I can to live in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That is so simple, isn't it? And Yet in our flesh, in our weakness, in our relationship, sometimes it's so hard. Isn't it Jesus who said the flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? And so as we close out our service today, and you'll decide when we close, I'm going to give an opportunity now to pray and respond to this if the Lord has led you. I know some people have difficulty praying publicly. That's okay. But if perhaps a couple of you or more want to just lead us in prayer. You don't have to stand up. Just If the Lord has touched your heart and you want to pray publicly with us and for us, I want to give you that opportunity. First of all, to thank God. Secondly, to ask God to make you an instrument of unity and living legacy. And, if necessary, to confess, if you are out of sorts, I use that word, if something's not right between you and some other brother or sister in this church today, then determine that before you leave this building, you're going to go to that person and say, hey, let's talk about it. I understand you're upset with me, I'm upset with you, or whatever. If you're just out of sorts and you want to make sure it's okay and right, then just confess, Lord, help me to do that and make this right. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that now. You don't have to even close your eyes. You know, Jesus didn't always close his eyes. He lifted his hand to heaven, Matthew chapter 11, and he prayed. So if you'd like to pray publicly for us and with us, I want to give you that opportunity right now. I'll pause.